See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, this morning, we uh, are closing out our study in the book of Galatians, and we're doing so. The text that we just read, that's Paul's conclusion to the letter, and it's actually, it's a very interesting conclusion of Paul. You know, in verse 11, when he writes, see with what large letters I am writing to you with my own, with my own hand, we got to understand that for six chapters now, Paul, he hasn't actually been writing the letter. He's been transcribing it to a secretary, to someone, uh, probably with better handwriting than him, who has been carefully writing down everything. And what he does here, chapter six, is he grabs the pen from the secretary, and his handwriting probably wasn't nearly as good or nice or clean, and he just starts writing in very, very large letters. And what he's doing is he's saying, here's what the whole book is about. Here's everything I've been trying to say to you. And so if this is your first time with us, your first time with us in the series, congratulations. You get the summary of everything Galatians is about this morning where, because that's what Paul does. He boils it down for us. And we've said from the beginning, Galatians is a book that's about freedom. The freedom that Jesus came to bring to us. Freedom from our sin and also freedom from man-made religion and rituals. And what Paul lays out for us here in Galatians 6 is that the only way we can live into this freedom is through the cross of Jesus Christ. Galatians 6.14, you could call Paul's battle cry of freedom. Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So we're going to spend most of our time there, but what I want to do is look at this passage under two simple headings, the offense of the cross, which Paul lays out here, and then the glory of the cross. And what Paul's saying, if you want to experience freedom, you have to first acknowledge and embrace the offense of the cross, and then you got to learn what it means to glory in the cross. And you might say, well, where do you get the offense of the cross? Well, in verse 12, Paul He says, it is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cause of Christ. And again, if you're visiting with us, seeing the word circumcised there might be kind of jarring. Uh, If you're You've been here throughout the series, you've become desensitized to how many times Paul says circumcised in this letter. But 
what you need to know, and we've said this a bunch of times, but circumcision was really just a symbol. It was shorthand for keeping all of the Old Testament laws. And so when Paul says there are these teachers that once you be circumcised, what he's saying is there are these teachers who are telling you that the way to salvation is you believe in Jesus and then you obey, obey all of the laws of the Old Testament. Now, Paul's contention and Christianity's contention is, no, the way we're saved is by Jesus Christ alone. Jesus plus nothing. They were arguing, no, it's Jesus plus your obedience, Jesus plus circumcision and the like. Now, what makes, Paul's been making that argument throughout Galatians, what makes this text unique is that Paul explains why these false teachers were trying to add morality to the grace of God. In verse 12, he says they were doing this in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Now, this is a little confusing, but you got to track with me here because what Paul is saying is God saves us by grace and grace alone. But there's something about that that's offensive. And because that's offensive, we, we want to add things to it. We want to contribute in some way. We don't want to just receive it freely. We have to bring something else to it, to our salvation. Scriptures teach salvation is by grace alone. But when you try to add things to the cross, you end up removing the cross. And this is what Paul gets at back in chapter 5, where he said, Brothers, if I still preach circumcision, obedience to the law, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross is removed. See, the, the cross is offensive, to boil it down, because it declares that we are so sinful and so broken and so corrupt that there's nothing that can heal us other than the grace of God and the grace of God alone. The cross is offensive because it says to you and to me, <laughs> it doesn't matter how hard you try, it doesn't matter how much good you try to do, you will never be able to overcome your sin on your own, in your own power. The only way you can be healed is the grace of God. Now, if you, you're hearing me, there's something about that message that's really offensive to us because it's saying that we are broken at the very core of who we are. First Corinthians, Paul, he expands on this message of the offense of the cross, and he shows that the cross offends different people in different ways. And he points to two groups of people. He says that Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. So Paul's saying there are these two groups of people, and there's, there's people like this in our day. You had the Jews and the Greeks or the Gentiles. And both groups were offended by the cross, but they were offended in different ways. For the Greeks, the Greeks were intellectuals. Their counterpart today would be people that, you know, we'd look to, or maybe they would look to themselves as being the intellectual elites. And what the Greeks thought the world needed more than anything was wisdom. Can we get wisdom? If we can get enough wisdom, we can solve all of the world's problems. And this is why even in our day, you see people who don't just care about politics, but they're obsessed with politics or economics or any number of things, thinking if we can just pass the right laws, elect the right people, 
deal with human government and human systems well enough, we can solve the world's problems. Eric Schmidt, who was the former executive chairman of Google, he was once talking about what technology was going to do, the wisdom we've gained with technology. And he says, in the future, people are going to spend less time trying to get technology to work because it will just be seamless. It will just be there. The well will be everything and it will be nothing. It will be like electricity. You know, he's saying, look at what we're going to do. And then he says this, if we get this right, I believe we can fix all of the world's problems. If we can just fix this, we can fix everything. And then comes the cross of Jesus Christ, which stands in direct opposition to that. Now, it's important you see that the Greeks, the intellectual elites of our day, just like Paul's day, they're not, they're not offended by Jesus usually. In fact, they're usually intrigued by things Jesus teaches. You know, love your enemies, turn the other cheek, blessed are the peacemakers. There's parts of Jesus' teaching that people look at and they think, hey, that's great. What they're offended by is the cross of Jesus Christ. Because the cross of Jesus Christ declares the real problem in this world is not just a lack of wisdom, it's the wickedness in each of our hearts. And our greatest need as a people, it's not just for more wisdom, although we certainly need more wisdom. Our greatest need is for redemption and for healing. All the wisdom, all the science, all the research in the world can't heal the evil and sin in our hearts. And, you know, we know this, I think, instinctively. Like, we, we look to find solutions to the problems in our world. And you take politics or economics, and I don't want to wait too far into that. But if people weren't sinful, you could have almost any economic system or political system, and it would be fine. If people weren't selfish and self-centered and self-absorbed, if everyone wasn't just looking out for themselves, if people were generous and kind and good at the very heart of who they are, you could have any kind of form of government and it would probably work. But the cross says, no, the problem's too deep. And the Greeks, while they wanted wisdom, you had the Jews on the other hand, and Paul says that the Jews... They were offended by the cross because they wanted miraculous signs. What they wanted, they didn't care as much about wisdom. What they really wanted was for God to come in power. You know, they had been oppressed for generations. They'd suffered, and now they're under the heavy hand of Rome. And what they wanted was for God to show up in a dramatic and powerful way to smite their enemies and to topple Rome. That's what they were looking for. That's what they were praying for and hoping for. God, crush all the people that we don't like. Now, God, he didn't come in power. He came in weakness. He didn't come as a warrior. He came as a child. And he did perform miracles, but they weren't the miracles people were really looking for. You know, he turned water into wine and he healed the sick, but I think... <laughs> A lot of the Jews, they were hoping that he would rain down fire from heaven instead. But he didn't. He didn't smite anyone. Instead, he himself was crushed on the cross. And the mockery that was thrown at him was, oh, he's the king of the Jews. Look at him. He's dying on the cross. He's the king of the Jews. See, in our day, 
just like in that day. There are many who want to claim the name of Jesus or who want to believe in God, but the belief in God or Jesus is really a means to an end. The end is they want power. They want success. They want victory. And their belief in God, their belief in Jesus is a means to that end that sometimes is shows up in politics, sometimes it shows up in the prosperity gospel, but the belief is all the evil's out there, and with God on our side, we can conquer all of the evil. But the cross declares there is evil out there, yes, but there's also evil in here, in every one of our hearts. In two days, we celebrate Christmas, reality that God drew near to us, and even Christmas, it tells us it points us, it, it leads us to the offense of the cross because Jesus Christ, he wasn't born simply to tell us how to live better or be better people. If that were the case, the birth of Christ, it would actually be a compliment. Like what we'd celebrate in two days, it would be a compliment because it would basically be God saying, you guys are doing really, really well. You just need a little bit of help. And I've got just the person who can come and help you. He's going to teach you some great things. If you implement them in your life, you're going to find unparalleled success. But that's not what happened at the birth of Jesus Christ. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph, he didn't say, you, you shall have a son, and you are to give to him the name Aristotle because he's going to show you how to be better people. Instead, the angel says, you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. If you're tracking with me, what this means is that when we see, you know, the nativity depiction, we should see that it's an indictment on one level on every single one of us. Because our problem was so bad that it took God coming to earth to deal with it. You know, years ago when I was a pastor in Ohio, there's a local restaurant I would visit all the time. And one of the waiters there I became friends with, and he was a staunch atheist, but he was a I would say he was intellectually open. He wasn't an atheist like, I, I don't believe in God and I hate him kind of guy. It was more like, I just, I don't think I believe, I don't think I'm convinced that God exists, but I'm open. And so I invited him to church and he started showing up. Sometimes he'd sit in the very front row, notebook out, taking notes. He started reading his Bible, started hanging out with other people in the church. He'd read other books that I'd give him. And after about six months, uh, I was hanging out with him, and he said, you know, I'll admit I'm intrigued by this whole thing. I'm intrigued by the Bible. I'm intrigued by the teachings of Jesus. I'm really intrigued by the church. I've never seen people who treat each other the way you guys treat each other, and it's fascinating to me. And he said, but, but I do have two qualms. One, I can't handle all this talk about blood. Like, you guys talk about blood all the time. You sing about blood, you talk about blood, and likewise, I don't like all this talk about sin. I feel like every week in our services, we like acknowledge our sin and confess our sin. And I'm like, well, that's because we do. It's part of our liturgy. And he was like, well, that's just negative to me. Like, I don't, I don't like the negative stuff, and I don't like the blood and gore. Now, I happen to know that this guy loved horror films, and so <laughs> it wasn't the blood and gore 
it was the offense of the cross. I don't like hearing that I've got sin that's so deep that it took the bloody, gruesome death of the Son of God to save me. And when he shared that with me, I said, well, you're actually, you're, you're really starting to understand what's at the heart of Christianity. It's God taking our place for our sin. Our sin is so bad that that's what it took. And the only way we can be cleansed, the only way we can be healed, the only way we can be set free is through the death of Jesus. And, and that, that's offensive, but it's only when you recognize the offense that you'll ever see the glory of the cross. Because the offense of the cross is that we're so sinful that God had to die for us. The glory of the cross is that God is so loving that he willingly chose to do so. The offense of the cross is we're so sinful that we are separated from God and we deserve judgment. The glory of the cross is that God so loved the world that he took our judgment so that we might be reconciled to him. And that's, we're starting to get to the glory of the cross. When Paul says, far be it for me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, that word boast, there's no exact equivalent in English. There's no one word that sums up everything Paul's trying to say there. Most of us, when we hear boast, we probably think of bragging. And while those two concepts can be somewhat connected, bragging is usually external. That's where you go around and tell everyone something. Boasting is more of an internal thing. It's something that happens in our heart. To boast in something is, it's not just to rejoice in it, but to revel in it, to live for it. The old King James translate that word, what's translated as boast here to the word glory, which I think is a good word, uh, that we boast, we glory. What Paul's saying is he, he's only going to boast in glory in Christ and for us, to understand what he means there, we have to think about what are the things that we boast and glory in in this world? Well, we boast, we glory, we revel in things that we feel validate our existence and prove our worth. We boast and we glory, we revel in things that we think give our lives meaning. And so if your child does well in school, or does something you weren't expecting or exceeds expectations, there's something in your heart that gets really proud, right? And it's not, I'm not even saying it's a bad proud, pride. It's just you get this kind of joy that overcomes you. I'll tell you why it happens for my wife and I. When, when we hear our kid did something great at school, it's like, well, we didn't totally screw them up, you know? <laughs> like, look at that. But you actually, I mean, we feel better. Like there's something in us that's like, it's not just, oh, that's good. It's like, yeah, that's really good. We can boast in our kids. We can boast in our success. You get a promotion, you feel really good about it, you know, and it, you kind of revel in it and you look and you say, man, I'm not a total screw up, look at this. Maybe you get published. I know a lot of you have been published. The first time you get published, it's like, I've been published. Maybe it's your, your physique. You got in great physical shape. And you look in the mirror, and you're like, hey, not, not too bad. We all have things that we boast in, that we, we revel in. And what Paul actually says is that the false teachers in Galatia, he says uh, in verse 13, he says, they desire to have you circumcised that they may 
boast in your flesh. And what he's saying here, because that, that's kind of a weird verse the first time you read it. But what he's saying here is these false teachers, they were preaching and putting all these things out so that when people adhered to it and obeyed, they could say, look, our movement's growing. Look, our church is growing. You know, record attendance. They wanted to boast. They wanted to revel. Some of the things we want to boast and revel in in this world are bad. Some of them aren't bad at all. Some of them are good. The problem is everything that we tend to boast and revel in on this earth, every single thing, it's fragile and flimsy and fading. Everything's tenuous. And this is where we get to the reason why we don't live free. We don't experience freedom. We don't walk as if we are free. It's because we base our boast, our glory, on things on this earth that, that are tenuous and fleeting. It's why we feel insecure. It's why every day is an emotional roller coaster. Some days you feel amazing. Other days you feel in the dumps. It's why some days you can't get out of bed. Because we're looking to things on this earth, oftentimes good things, to boast in, to find our meaning, to validate our existence, but they don't have the weight, the, the structural integrity to, to handle it. And so some of you, you are looking to find your validation in life from your success. Like you really think if you can just build your practice a little bit more, if you can just grow your company or get that promotion, or finally someone takes notice of you, you think if I get that, then I'll be happy, but you won't. I mean, you'll be happy for a little bit, but you'll either succeed and you'll find out that even success doesn't satisfy or you won't succeed and you'll spend your life chasing success but never quite getting it. Or maybe you do all right, but you still end up retiring. And if you've boasted and gloried in your work, like in the end, it's gonna come to nothing. If you boast and glory in your children, your parenting, you're gonna live and die with every failure and success that they have. Why are parents so uptight with their kids? especially in church. You know, and I feel it too as a pastor. I didn't grow up in the church, so I'm still figuring out what it means to be in the church a lot of the time. But my kids do things at church, and I'm like, stop it. Don't, you can't. Like, I get a little more frustrated with them here than anywhere. Why? Because it's the church, and you're not supposed to have fun in church, as far as I remember. But you know, like, we, we, we put the pressure. Why? Because we live and die with our successes, you know, we can see this more clearly in other people when they totally overreact to stuff with their kids. It's like, I don't think it's that big of a deal. But if you find your meaning and your validation in your kids, then it does become that big of a deal. You know, if you tap real meaning in life in your looks, like I hate to tell you this, but gravity is real and gravity always wins. <laughs> and so some of you, you have great reason to boast in your looks right now. Boast while you can, because it's fading. And there's always going to be someone who comes along who looks better. If you boast in your religious devotion, like, here's what I've done, here's what I've achieved, here's what I've memorized. What's going to happen is you're going to live, if you find your, your real sense of meaning in that, you're going to live in a place where you're constantly evaluating yourself, constantly asking, am I doing enough? Am I performing enough? Am I religious enough? 
You're going to be anxious and fearful and uptight, which describes way too many Christians. It's because you're trying to boast in what you do, and that's what was happening in Galatia. See, if we boast in anything on this earth, we're putting ourselves in a really fragile condition because nothing on this earth can handle that weight. And that's why Paul comes along and he says, I'm never going to boast in anything except for the cross of Jesus Christ. And when he says that, he's not saying I'm never going to celebrate a win or a promotion or my kid's doing something well. He's saying he's not going to look to anything else in this world to find his meaning, to validate his existence. He is looking solely to the cross to meet that need. Because only the cross has the power to handle that. As Paul says, he boasts, he doesn't just trust. And I would say that when we learn to move beyond trusting in the cross or believing in the cross to boasting in the cross, that's when our lives really begin to gain power and change. There's a lot of people who believe in Jesus, believe he died for their sins, but their lives aren't changed. Like they believe, I believe Jesus died, but... Day in and day out, they're anxious, they're fearful. And that's all of us to some extent, right? But when you go from just believing and you actually start boasting, that's when your relationship with everything on this earth begins to transform. Look again, Paul says, Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me. And I to the world. Paul is saying, because I am boasting in the cross, because that is where I'm finding my real sense of identity, that's where I tap meaning in life, my relationship with the world has been radically altered. It's been crucified to me and I to it. I'm no longer controlled by it or beholden to it. I don't have to find validation in what other people think or the car I drive or the house I live in or the job I possess. And I have to find my worth chasing after fleeting things. My worth is in the fact that God loved me and gave himself to me, gave himself to me and for me. And that alone is all I need. I don't need to boast in anything else. Everything else I can enjoy, but, but I don't have to live and die with it. See, that's the only thing strong enough. The cross declares... You are forgiven of your sins, which means your missteps, your mistakes, and your sins do not define you. The cross declares that as far as the east is from the west, so your sins have been removed from you. Not only are you forgiven, the cross declares that you've been adopted into God's family. You're not just a servant of God. You are a daughter or a son. Even more, you're not just a daughter or a son. You're deeply loved by God. The cross declares that God doesn't just tolerate us. He delights in us. It's through the cross that we're given God's spirit, through the cross that we become heirs of God's kingdom, which means all of the promises in the scriptures are promises for us. And so when we read the promises in the Bible, we should be like a child reading the will of what's coming to them. Like this is amazing. So if we don't lose our father to get the stuff, we gain our father and the stuff. When that's what we look to, to find meaning, to boast in, 
then we can enjoy the things of the world. But we spend our days looking to these things and then we wonder why we don't live free. You know, last year for Christmas, my daughter, she, for months, she was asking for this robotic kitten, like a little kitten robot. I think it was called the Robo Kitty. Um, it was kind of a remote control thing and she really, really wanted it. And the reviews for this thing were just horrible. You know, it was like one and a half star. I don't typically buy below four stars. That's my, my own personal rule. And I'm like, I don't think you want this. And it's really expensive. She's like, I don't care. I don't want, uh, don't get me anything else. Just get me the Robo Kitty. I don't know if you have any kids like that. That's the way I was growing up. So I know where she gets it from. And I keep trying to tell her, you're not, I don't think you're going to be happy with this thing. She was adamant, and so thought it was a great time for a lesson. So I bought her the Robo Kitty, and probably three days, I know less than a week, I walk into our living room, the tail's over here, a leg of the kitty's over here, and the thing was a total disappointment. And we were talking this year, and this year she's like, I don't want any toys. You know, she's getting a little older, but she was like, you know, I was so excited for that Robo Kitty. She's like, that thing wasn't all that great. I was like, no, it wasn't all that great, was it? Successive emphasis on, on something that, that can't bring meaning. Now, some of the things we talk about, your success, your family, your kids, they're, they're a lot more valuable than a robo-kitty or a toy. But to look to them to find your real sense of meaning, that's like a kid thinking, if I just get this present, I'll be happy and never ask for anything else again. And that's why Paul is saying, Boast in the cross. Be free. Put your hope there. Quit looking for the approval of others. Quit looking to acquire more stuff. Quit looking to your own religious devotion. Instead, look to the finished work of Jesus. And that's why in verse 15, Paul says, For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. See what Paul's saying there is through the cross... What we do doesn't really matter so much. I mean, it does matter, but it doesn't matter so much. Circumcision, uncircumcision, whatever religious rich, what matters is you're a new creation. You've been filled with God's spirit. And the heart of what it means to be a Christian is not to check off a spiritual to-do list. It's to keep in step with God's spirit who's actively at work in you, who's making all things new in this world and in your life. So as Paul brings this letter to a close, he's asking us, where do you stand in regards to the cross? Have you been offended by it? Have you seen the cross as the greatest monument to our sin in the history of the world? Even more, have you been transformed by it? Have you seen the cross as the greatest display of the love of God that this world has ever known? As we come to the Lord's table, we're reminded of both of these things. You know, we do this every week, and so it's easy for it to to just become a bit rote for us, but the night before Jesus' crucifixion, he took a loaf of bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body. This is my flesh that's gonna be broken for you. And then he took a cup filled with dark, red, rich wine and he said, this is my blood. The blood of the new covenant that's going to be poured out for you. And then he said, I want you to do this in remembrance of me. I want you to take part in this meal. 
to be, remember, to be reminded, one, of the brutality of the cross, the brutality of what I suffered for your sin, but two, to be reminded of the depth of the love that I have for you. And so if you're here and you're in Christ, I encourage you to come to take part in the Lord's Supper. The way we do it here is we tear off a piece of bread and we dip it in either wine or juice, whichever your conscience permits. I pray that you might do that and remember this is where my identity is, that I'm loved by God. If you're here and you're not a Christian, we ask that you not take part in this meal, but you take part in Jesus Christ who gave his life that he might rescue yours. Let me pray.